Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome to Essex Church on this sunny, note, sunny morning. Welcome to Essex Church, where this community known as Kensington Unitarians meets each Sunday morning and for other activities during the week. Ours is a community created by all those who walk through our doors. So whether you are someone who's been a member here for many years or someone who still feels quite new, whether you're an occasional visitor or somebody who's even experiencing Unitarian worship for the first time, all are welcome here today. And today I'd like to extend a special welcome to the Reverend Sheena Gabriel, who's leading much of our service today. Sheena is Minister to the Congregation in Godalming, and I'm delighted that she's here with us. And I also want to welcome the people I like to describe as our summer swallows. These are the loyal and regular visitors who fly in from Flanzafar to be with us each year. Welcome back. And finally, let us extend our welcome to all those who listen to our services on podcasts through the internet. It's good, isn't it, to think of these connections that are being made across the country and indeed across the world. So, welcome podcasters. And now let's take a moment. Let's take a moment to gather ourselves to bring all aspects of ourselves fully here now. We come from different directions to this place. We bring our joys and our concerns. They're unique to us and to our life's journey. But here, we join together in a shared time of worship. And may the troubled find peace here with us. May the weary find rest. May those who feel blessed find ways to share their good fortune with others. And may the divine spirit of life and love be with us now in this our time of worship and bless our togetherness. May our hearts be softened. May our busy minds be stilled. May our bodies be at peace with themselves. lighting our chalice this morning, this symbol of liberal religion the world over, in recognition of the efforts of people living under repressive regimes to win their freedoms. Freedoms I know that I certainly at times take completely for granted. Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to be here, to see familiar faces and also many new faces. And um, I bring greetings from the chapel in Godalming, for those of you that know Godalming Unitarian Chapel. My first reading is by a Unitarian Universalist minister called Meg Barnhouse. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. These words written by Dame Julian of Norwich... It's one of the mantras used in Christian meditation. Lately, I've been experimenting with repeating this phrase. I try it out in different situations. Sometimes I feel stupid affirming that all will be well. What about those things that aren't well and don't look like they're ever going to be well? 
It's hard to see the whole picture from where I stand at this moment in my life. I can't tell in the grand scheme of things whether things are turning out well or not. To affirm that all will be well and all manner of things will be well is difficult. There are child abusers, torturers, AIDS, oil spills and a multitude of other horrors in this world. But here's what I do know. I know that I have a choice between hope or despair when viewing the world and my future. Each choice has equal evidence in its favour. Each is affirmed and underscored by my life experience. How do I decide between them? I choose the one that brings the most joy, healing and compassion to my life and to the world. In despair, I'm no good to anyone. I stop functioning well. I drag through the days. I deal with horrors that haven't even happened yet. I don't enjoy my children or food or any of the other dazzling pleasures of my life. When my mother was dying of cancer, she said to me, Maggie, everything that happens to me is good. That was a statement of her faith. I was a cynical 23-year-old seminary student. My mother's faith sounded naive and silly. I was in despair over her suffering. But she was not in despair and it was her suffering. Suddenly, it seemed presumptuous to despair over her suffering when she was choosing not to. As I experiment with this mantra and risk feeling stupid, I ask myself, which is more stupid? To despair my whole life just in case things aren't going to end well, or to live in joy and hope my whole life, whether or not things turn out well. So I'm going to keep singing this mantra to my fears. All will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well. Some words by Meg Barnhouse. And now I invite you into a time of prayer and reflection. And I'm going to use some words by Dame Julian of Norwich. And include just a moment of silence. So I invite you to settle into a comfortable position. And still your body and your mind. Be a gardener, dig a ditch, toil and sweat and turn your earth upside down. Seek the deepness and water the plants in time. Continue this labour and make sweet floods to run and noble and abundant fruits to spring. Take this food and drink, 
and carry it to God as your true worship. Our failing is full of dread. Our falling is full of shame. And our dying is full of sorrow. But still, in all this, the sweet eye of pity and love never departs from us. And the working of mercy does not cease. In you, God, we have our preservation and our bliss. In you, Father and Mother, is our restoring. In you, Spirit, is marvellous and plenteous grace. You are our clothing. For love you wrap us and embrace us. You are our maker, our lover, our keeper. Teach us to believe that by your grace all should be well and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Amen. My second reading is by another Unitarian Universalist. Um, somebody called Rosemary Bray McNatt and this is um, an edited, a shortened version of a longer piece I started attending the community church of New York no one required me to make promises I could not keep there was no list of beliefs that determined whether I was in or out of favour and most importantly there were no gatekeepers who decided on my worthiness or unworthiness. Everyone, including me, was part of a glorious creation. Just by being alive, I was good, worthwhile, sacred. It was a revelation. For a long time, it was enough, this freedom to think for myself to embrace the spirit of scepticism and the rejection of doctrine. I reveled in the community of like-minded people, all of us fleeing the excess and rigidity of our childhood beliefs and the unquestioning faith of our parents. But I kept on living, 
I kept on living in a world filled with tears and tragic events that had no easy explanations. I kept on facing great joy and deep disappointment. I kept on being confronted by hopeless situations that unexpectedly came to amazing conclusions. And thanks to the freedom I found as a Unitarian Universalist, I continued to ask what it was I was experiencing. <coughs> the answer came slowly. Bit by bit, I learned to acknowledge grace. Came to believe the irrational idea that amid everything, there was a knowing, loving presence that abides in all things, even in me. I knew I could not explain what was gradually becoming clear to me, but I only knew the truth of Julian of Norwich's proclamation that all will be well and all manner of things will be well. At the same time I was comforted by this notion, I remained suspicious. How could all be well when I myself had spent a childhood in which all was definitely not well? How could it all be well as long as people cried out for justice and bread? How could it be well when millions lived out their lives without one moment of ease or pleasure? while others knew nothing else. I now had no answers to these questions, only the continuing sense that there is so much more to our lives here than the horrors we inflict on one another and the blessings we too rarely bestow. And then, one day, God spoke. On retreat at a women's conference, I joined with other participants in a sacred spiral dance. Asked as part of the dance to speak to the divine and listen for an answer, I joined in, impatient, sceptical and freezing cold. As I made a perfunctory list of my concerns, I could suddenly feel a presence in me. It was a presence that made itself felt in every cell of my body, and it was followed by a voice, neither male nor female, and utterly unlike anything I have ever felt. The voice made itself heard in my body, and it told me dearly, lovingly, don't worry, my child, don't worry. When I spoke to the voice about the hopes and dreams of my life and the secret desires I carried, it promised me all these things and more. And then the voice and presence left me and left me changed forever. Most theologians agree that God is beyond naming or full understanding. Yet we human beings, nonetheless, are called to make the attempt. It is the free faith 
of Unitarian Universalism that enables me to be confident that my search for the divine is structured not by institutions or individuals but by that presence who continues to call me and whom I continue to question because of this powerful freedom to believe and to doubt I live in trust believing that all manner of things will be well. Some words by Rosemary Gray McNutt. Well, I wonder what your reactions are to those words, all should be well, and all manner of things should be well. They may resonate... But equally, they may provoke feelings of cynicism or irritation. You may be sick of hearing them already. Well, Julian of Norwich, who penned those words, was a Christian mystic living in the 14th century. And we don't know much about her early life, but we know she became an anchoress, living in a cell attached to the parish church of St. Julian in Norwich. And when she was around 30, during a serious illness, she had a visionary experience in which she heard those words. And these experiences were recorded in a book known as Revelations of Divine Love. And it's possibly the first book written by an English woman. Julian insisted that God is pure love and contains no wrath. It's we as humans who project our anger and our wrath onto the divine. And Julian taught that sin was part of the learning process of life. And she spoke of God as a mother as well as a father. And this was radical stuff. This optimistic theology is all the more remarkable when we think of the period she wrote in. Living amidst the horrors of the Black Death and the Hundred Years' War between England and France. It was a time of peasant uprisings, and the Catholic Church was in schism. And the priests would teach that the misfortunes afflicting the population were punishments from God. And in contrast, these words of Julian were a source of light and hope. But are these words simply blind optimism? which fly in the face of reality, do they still have meaning today? Some would argue not. I wonder if any of you have ever read the children's book Pollyanna by Eleanor Porter. It was one of the few improving books of which my grandmother approved. There weren't many. And the main character, Pollyanna, is orphaned and she goes to live with her aunt a stern aunt. But Pollyanna has a philosophy of life which she calls the glad game and she finds a reason to be happy in every situation. So when her aunt sticks her in an attic room without any pictures or carpet, Pollyanna enthuses about the beautiful view out of the window. And when she's sentenced to bread and milk in the kitchen, Pollyanna thanks her aunt profusely because she likes bread and milk. And she likes Nancy, the servant. 
And with her sunny disposition, she brings so much gladness to the dispirited New England town, she transforms it. And she teaches others around her to play the glad game. And even her aunt thaws under her relentless cheerfulness. And there were many Pollyanna stories written by other authors because it was such a popular message. And something called glad clubs sprang up. Now, I have no idea what they actually do at a glad club, but apparently one still exists in Denver. And in the author's hometown, every summer, they still host the official Pollyanna Glad Day. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if all that gladness leaves you feeling a bit grouchy. And, of course, the word Pollyanna-ish has now come into our English language for, rather pejoratively, for someone whose optimism is excessive and rather naive. And more disturbing, perhaps, than sweet Pollyanna is the positivity shown by the character in Voltaire's satirical novel, Candide, Dr. Pangloss, who teaches that in this best of all possible worlds, everything happens for a reason. And every twist of the plot, however awful, is for the greater good. And we can detect this philosophy, perhaps, in some religious beliefs. The idea that all will be well in heaven, so let's just passively accept the misfortune in this life. And also the New Age belief. We create our own reality, we choose everything that happens to us, so we shouldn't complain. Suffering is just illusory. So some people might think that Julian of Norwich's words are just a Pollyannaism, or a Dr. Pangloss spin on suffering. But I don't think they are. Julian did not deny life's difficulties, and she was not immune from them. She lived through the Black Death, which killed nearly half the population of Norwich. Some scholars suggest she married, and that her husband and children were lost in the plague. And she herself died, nearly died, from serious illness. She makes it clear that God will not shield her from suffering, in her words. If there is anywhere on earth a lover of God who is always kept safe, I know nothing of it. But this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in that same precious love. And Julian, in her visions... Hears Christ tell her that all should be well. But she argues back, she's not having it. Ah, good Lord, how can all things be well because of the great harm which has come through sin to your creatures? And it took Julian nearly 20 years to struggle with these words. She wrote two versions of her visions, the short account directly after them, 20 years later, she was still reflecting on them. So she didn't trot the words out as a pious platitude. She questioned and doubted and wrestled with her God until finally she made the words her own. And they're words that are lived out by ordinary men and women throughout the ages who see reason for hope amidst the bleakest of circumstances. 
Now for Julian, it was her strong belief in the unshakable love of God that gave her reason for hope. Some of you may share a similar conviction, but others of you won't. But even so, perhaps you have a philosophy of life that enables to make sense of the notion that all should be well. It could be a belief in the Buddhist principle of non-attachment, with its possibility of transcending the cycle of suffering and duality. Or a belief in the goodness of human nature that envisages a world where finally we learn to live at peace. Or else a perspective that sees the planet as a self-renewing organism, capable of regeneration long after we humans have done our worst. We can interpret the words on levels that feel right for us. And even if you can't believe it, on a psychological level, there's something to be said at times for acting as if it were true. In therapy, one technique for dealing with difficult emotions is to act the opposite of how you're feeling. Smiling, finding something to laugh about when you feel like crying. And it's based on the notion that action precedes motivation. By acting the opposite, we stimulate those feel-good chemicals which can raise our mood. And of course, it doesn't mean we should smother painful feelings or deny problems. But at times, acting as if enables us to stay afloat in the sea of distress or pain. And it helps us all hold the opposites in creative tension. I feel sad, there is pain in my life, but that is not the whole of all there is. And I choose in this moment to enlarge my vision and see what else may be present. And this is akin to the Buddhist doctrine of two truths. Relative truth is based on appearance and describes our experiences in this concrete world. Absolute truth describes an ultimate reality that can't be seen. In our limited perception, we suffer and hurt. But there is a larger reality transcending our preoccupations. Now some people argue if we kid ourselves all should be well, we become passive and do nothing to improve our situation. But the opposite is also true. When realists insist we're doomed as a species, that climate change is too far gone and war will never end, they may well be right. But for me, listening to those voices paralyzes me with the futility of it all, and I do nothing. Whereas holding on to a hopeful vision spurs me to action. For me, these words slowly, slowly over the years have come to make sense. I hold on to the conviction that beyond my limited human understanding, there is a loving presence which upholds the universe. I can't prove it. On one level, it seems utterly foolish, but it enables me to live more joyfully and confidently in this world than I could otherwise do. I don't want to force my faith onto you. It's up to each of us 
to find a worldview we can live by. And so I leave you with the invitation to experiment with the notion that all should be well, to try the words on, to wrestle with them as Julian did, to see if you can make them your own. For some of you, it will make sense as a spiritual reality. For others, it may be a psychological tool to make a conscious choice to live and act as though all will be well and all manner of thing will be well. And to see what difference this might make in your own life. So maybe. As we take another step along the road of our lives, may we be kind and gentle with ourselves, kind and gentle with one another, kind and gentle with our world, sometimes beautiful, sometimes bruised and aching, a world that needs our love more now than ever. Amen. Go well and blessed be.